UX saves lives. This is what the veteran UXer Darren Hood said in the second episode of our podcast series. This impactful statement led me to dig deeper into the domain of clinical UX, which is in the business of saving lives. Our today's guest, Dr. Giles Morrison, is a doctor turned clinical UXer. His mission in life is to make healthcare more accessible and scalable with the help of truthful, research based, and robust user experience. I'm your host, Sweekriti, and this is India's first user and UX research podcast, Core User to UX. Welcome to the show, Dr. Giles Morrison. You were previously a doctor and now you are pursuing clinical UX, which is immensely respectable. And at the same time, it's very much needed. We need professionals from different domains in UX so that mm-hmm. UX improves and it directly impacts life. I have also discussed this in my previous show with Darren Hood, that how UX is a superhero job. Mm-hmm. And that show brought me to you because in that episode, Darren mentioned that he's working in medicinal UX and the processes that he designs helps chemists and nurses get the right medicine to the right patients because there are so many things to manage. So the user experience and the design there is making someone's life simpler. And he mentioned that uh, a single error can cost so many lives. So that's how it hit me that medicinal and clinical UX is a different universe in itself and Mm. we can learn a lot from it and apply to other domains. That's why you're the best person to discuss about clinical UX. And Mm. uh, before we dive into whatever we are going to discuss, I would want you to sort of define what exactly clinical UX is and Mm. What are its goals? Why is it important and so much yeah. important that we have to exclusively discuss about it? So please, stage is yours. Well, thank you. It's a pleasure to be be here on your podcast. So, yeah, clinical UX. It's still ultimately UX work, and the way I define UX then before defining clinical UX to me is about the experiences that people have with anything that's been designed. So not something that is in the naturally occurring world, something that has been made by humans, really, is the focus as well. And the fact that if we improve that design, the experience can be better. We don't design experiences. I can't force someone to have an experience. I can only influence it based on the products or services that I design. So then when we go to clinical UX, The focus then is on a very specific set of people. So it's clinicians and patients. Mm -hmm. And it's understanding the experiences that they have and designing for experiences with specific technology and services. So this is still quite broad, but because the focus is on clinicians and patients, this is a very regulated area. You know, knowledge of disease is also important. So... Mm -hmm. If we're creating a product, say, for clinicians to make a better diagnosis for patients, if they make a mistake, they could harm the patient. Because it's a diagnostic tool, this is something that's regulated, and there's different regulatory bodies around the world. 
and you have to make sure that you adhere to the regulatory rules so mm. that product can be approved to be used. Mm. But then there's even understanding of healthcare, like how does the clinician conduct their job and how does this diagnostic tool fit into their workflow? An understanding of that is going to be necessary so that instead of it being a distraction or something that disrupts the workflow, it actually enhances it. So it's not just understanding the workflow, but it's really having a deep understanding of healthcare as well, because there's many variables at play. And mm -hmm. just trying to learn this stuff on a case-by-case -case basis or an individual project is just immense amount of research. There's just a whole other language that's used in medicine, all the jargon that we use. And I think the, the other major thing about it as well is that there's a lot of politics at play, like literal politics and people politics that you find in organizations that's at play. And it's important to understand this so that you can still ultimately do what is best for your end user, be it a clinician or a patient or member of the general public. So just going back then, clinical UX is about the experiences that clinicians and patients have with healthcare technology and services. And it's important as a distinction from other areas of UX to understand about the realities of healthcare, about modern medicine, about the politics that's at play, the flow of money and how people access healthcare services and the regulatory side of it as well, the law and ethics that are at play too. You don't have to be a clinician to be in the field. Um, I am you know, a trained doctor doing clinical UX but I've got peers that have never worked clinically before who do excellent work in clinical UX as well. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, because the patient and the clinician's relationship is so important, like someone who has, like everyone has been a patient at some point of time. So that empathy can itself be a great motivator to be yes. in clinical UX. It can. I think the, the thing to keep in mind with empathy is that empathy, as much as it can be genuine feelings, mm. it still can be based on opinions mm. or very biased experiences. Yep. So it, it can be a useful starting point, but it doesn't replace the need of research, the need for really having a good grounding in the theory that's related to the topic at hand. And that's one of the reasons why a lot of people who have never worked in healthcare before can feel very, very overwhelmed when they work on a healthcare project that's specifically designing something to be used by clinicians or patients. Because as much as they know that they want to do a great job and they want to help people and they are passionate about it, there's so much that needs to be known that it can be very overwhelming to actually do the work. Because where do you begin? Like, a great example would be, oh, let's, um, let's help people that are living with type 2 diabetes. And it's like, well, this is a disease that could affect any human being in any part of the world. But suddenly culture, religion, sexuality, gender, age has huge influence over whether someone will improve their health outcomes with diabetes or not. And if you're serving a community that is nothing like you, yes, you can do research to get more insights, but that's just part of trying to understand how to help someone with type 2 diabetes. There's the whole medical side as well. Mm -hmm. And there's the whole um, healthcare economic side, like who's going to pay for all of this? 
And so if you can care about humans and you should start from a position of genuinely caring about people, which ties in with the empathy, but there's still a lot of science at play as well. Such a great point. So many great points. In fact, the point that there are just too many variables. So the great author Nassim Taleb talks about something known as unknown unknowns mm-hmm. and how they affect the en- entirety of our world, the history, how these unknown unknowns have affected history. And that is the thing with clinical UX. The unknown unknowns mm-hmm. can just change the game. The current role I am in, it's in edtech. I still have the luxury to have a very iterative ap- approach. I know that if something I've missed in the first iteration, the system will give me a feedback. See, mm-hmm. this is what we are getting. So eliminate these errors or make mm-hmm. improvement in the iteration. But this game of unknown unknown is at a different level in clinical UX. I do not have that luxury of so many iterations, I must say. Mm-hmm. So. One, this is one major difference that I can sense from discussing with you. What are the other major differences between clinical UX and the rest of the domains of UX? Um, Talking, uh, because healthcare directly impacts lives, literally, it's a matter of life and death. So what are the major and the most fundamental differences that we do not know? It's our unknown. Yeah. Uh, with respect to the other UX domains? Yeah, so some of it I mentioned previously with, for example, actually understanding about disease. So it doesn't mean you need to know about every single disease that uh, modern medicine understands, because no doctor does. (laughs) (laughs) But um, there's a process that clinicians go through, the diagnostic process, where you use signs that are detected by the clinician. They see something, so they recognize that you've got a high blood pressure reading or they recognize there's a knife in your back. Like they see something. Whereas there's symptoms which the patient would complain about. So I've got a headache or um, I feel this pain in my back. You know, they, they notice something and it can be a link between the signs and the symptoms. But then you do an assessment, you know, you ask questions or you do x-rays, you do blood tests and things like that. And you get a diagnosis and you have some sort of intervention where you try to fix the problem that's been diagnosed or you reassure that nothing's wrong. And then there should be some health outcome achieved, like the patient gets better, gets worse, or just stays the same. Mm -hmm. So that process is followed for any situation, any medical problem. It doesn't matter where someone's been trained as a doctor or nurse or healthcare professional, that same diagnostic process is followed. And it's important for clinical UX professionals and those working in healthcare to understand that process if they are then going to say, oh, let's see how we can make the life of a doctor better. If you don't understand the way that they're working and why they're making certain decisions, it's hard for you to see how your tool is going to help instead of actually hindering or being a distraction. So I think understanding about the realities of doing medical work is important, but it's a lot of information and there's a lot of new terminology that's used it's got its own language pretty much medicine a lot of latin based words that are used and it just it's, it was always frustrating at medical school why we had another word for something like purulent exudate purulent exudate is pus when you someone's got one of those pimples what comes out of it pus 
it's just pus, but for some mm. reason we call it purulent exudate. So there's all these like complicated ways of, of saying things, but until you're comfortable with that, and this comes to the second point where there's a big distinction, that stakeholder mm. engagement mm. in healthcare is so much more complicated yeah. because like, as a doctor, I feel very confident and comfortable in saying that a lot of doctors are very arrogant. <laughs> they think they know better, but it's also taught to us unofficially that we have to believe in ourselves because who wants to go to a doctor or even a surgeon who doesn't have faith in themselves, who doesn't trust that they're in control and they can do stuff, mm. especially if they're supposed to save your life. So doctors learn very quickly that they have to show that they're in a position of control. Even if they say they don't know what to do, they still do it in a way that should inspire confidence. So um, working with clinicians can seem difficult if you're not used to working with them. Yeah. And what's interesting about that is actually clinicians are very, very good at understanding what UX is about. Like the whole patient-centered care process or like keep the decision making about doing what's best for the patient always keep the patient at the center of that decision making process that's just the same as people-centered design user-centered design it's the same thing just in a different name now the importance of this is that when you understand that there's a similarity and a transfer um, transferable skills between clinicians and UVXs you can then have a much better working relationship with them and even include clinicians more involved in the work you're doing. So I'm not saying clinicians can just suddenly do all the user research, do all the design work. They still need training. Mm. But there's an understanding of it. There's, a, there's like a, um, a middle ground that you can both be working on because there's similarities in, in the profession. So you don't tend to get that similarity in other industries. Sometimes you do. You do if you say you're working with engineers or working with architects. They already understand the concept of user-centered design, human-centered design very, very well. Mm. I think the other major thing with clinical UX, which makes it quite distinct from other industries, is that failure can cause death. Yeah. And failure can um, lead to huge amounts of money being wasted. Mm -hmm. And... Um, that the stakes are so high, which can be high in other industries, but whereas other industries are like, well, I recognize how UX is going to be useful. Let's have a big UX team. UX maturity in general in healthcare is extremely low. Mm -hmm. It's very common that a UX professional will work on their own. It's very common that the only UX professional is one that's more so doing UI design work in digital health than any research or UX strategy work. And so there's this perception that UX is very easy and there's a prevalence of, well, let's use design sprints and design thinking by non-designers to do design work, which is a disaster. If we were to replace um, all of that with like, um, let's use the word building instead of design. Let's do building of this house using um, builder thinking by non-builders. You will not build a house. You will build some sort of abstract art. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like you have to have professionals doing the job. And this is a, a huge problem in healthcare is that there are entrepreneurs. There's definitely clinicians that are given a bit of free time to work on projects. And 
they really don't understand the complexity of the situation that they're trying to solve or bring a solution to because there's just so much going on in healthcare, variables that you can't control, the unknown unknowns, as you mentioned before, that if you aren't already very familiar with what you can know and you aren't actively trying to discover the unknown unknowns, that you don't have a, a methodology, a process in place for you to explore and risk assess and mm. identify where there could be problems, then you're just going to face stress. So, yeah, I think, again, it's really about trying to understand medicine, understand healthcare, the work that clinicians do, understand where you can work successfully with clinicians, where that common ground is, and really being clear that there is so much complexity at play that you need to be um, really sure of what are the facts that's going on. Because youth maturity in healthcare is, is very bad. <laughs> so the UX maturity uh, in general has grown over time. Like yeah. I'm talking about all domains. So accumulative, yes. it has grown and it is being recognized. Mm. What would be the reason of low UX maturity in healthcare or medicinal clinical sector? Yeah, it's a good question. I think so anecdotally, from my own experience, there's this perception that UX is easy to do because oftentimes, um, like in healthcare, we've got a lot of digital health products from, um, you know, the last 30, 40 years where there have never been UX professionals involved. And these products have been bought by hospitals, bought by clinicians, bought even by patients, and people have just accepted it. So the standard, the expectations that people have of UX is quite low. Mm -hmm. It's getting better because um, Apple, Google, um, even Microsoft, and specific products that are not tied to really large multi-billion dollar companies or trillion dollar companies, we're seeing that UX can be better. Over mm -hmm. time, consumers... I've realized we don't have to have solutions that are that are just okay or actually bad. We mm. don't have to have workarounds. We can actually have a solution that's very good. Mm. That's slowly but surely being introduced into healthcare, but still it's being done in a very disorganized and inappropriate way, where it's like, well, let's just copy what Google does, let's just copy what Apple does. And like, well, hang on, we're creating tools to be used by clinicians. So yes, there's a general best practice in user experience, but it's also designing for complexity. You know, there's a reason why you go to an airplane and look at the cockpit and see so many dials and buttons and switches and levers. It's because you are trying to put a massive heavy machine and keep it in the air with sometimes hundreds of people. This is like an incredible feat of engineering. Of course, it's not simple. Of course, it's going to be complicated. And that's okay. Pilots are heavily trained professionals. And so there's this tendency of like, well, let's just have it so there's only a couple of clicks. And let's make it really simple. And it's like, you're making it simple for you as someone who doesn't even have to do this work. That's not good UX. And that's what I mean before, where people think that doing UX work is easy and when even if you are a UX professional you bring that 
to healthcare, you're like, well, let's just try and make this simple. It's like sometimes it's okay for it to be complicated. Mm. But it doesn't mean that in it being complicated, that people who are trained professionals are still confused. That's still a UX failure. You know, we can still improve upon it. But definitely this perception that UX work is quite easy mm. and that the standard of what good UX looks like in healthcare is still quite low has then meant that we don't tend to have UX teams. We tend to have UX individuals working on projects. So it's like a UX team of one, so to speak. That's a very, very common thing. And where UX is seen as um, a resource to just make things better after development have done their work. Like the whole concept of UX management, UX strategy is not very common in healthcare. We've got UX strategists, we've got UX managers in loads of other industries, but we tend to see like, we'll just have one person doing all the UX work and maybe pay them a good salary, but the UX strategy piece and how that feeds into planning and scoping work, that's not very common in healthcare. Mm -hmm. that's a great nuance because i sense some sort of narrative misdirection in the sense mm -hmm. we want to make things simple all the time few clicks but mm -hmm. then again we also have to take into account the complexity of certain fields certain professions mm -hmm. and at the same time what i could understand from what you explained is that just because the patient needs it, we are handing them anything without thinking that is it the best that we can give. Mm -hmm. so, like this, the principles of UX are being misallocated. Yeah. <laughs> that's yeah. right. There, there's actually another problem that's happening in healthcare that I've noticed perhaps in the last four or five years. And that's the exponential increase of funding and investment in digital health. Like there's a lot of investment being put into digital health, mm. billions and billions. And so entrepreneurs are like, well, I want to be the Uber of healthcare. You know, I want to be the Apple of healthcare and all these sort of really stupid, bold statements. But they're saying this stuff because actually there are companies that have crazy valuations of their businesses for their ideas before they're even trading. And, you know, the last time we saw this happen wasn't so much digital health, but still healthcare with um, Elizabeth Holmes and Theranos. Uh, that was an absolute disaster. And what's worse, is we obviously it's not the point of this um, uh, session, but what's so bad about it is that there were so many warning signs that this was all nonsense and no one decided to follow up on it. Because again, someone's like, well, Someone just said it's okay. I'll just trust them. There isn't the sign, the science of what was going on wasn't really being scrutinized because people thought, well, I'll just throw money at it and it will get better. This is a common perception in healthcare, but only when it comes to digital health. Because if we were to think like this when we're dealing with COVID, we wouldn't have vaccination programs that's gone around the world. If we had this mindset when we're trying to cure any disease, make new medications, new surgical procedures. We always go through a scientific process with huge scientific rigor where it has to be peer reviewed. Otherwise, we don't trust it. Mm -hmm. But this, um, 
demand of scientific rigor in digital health and UX just isn't there. That's why you even have still apps put on the app stores saying, oh, download this app to improve your mental health. There's no evidence. There's never been a clinical trial to back up that it can work. So, but because people know that they could make a lot of money from this industry, they start working in it and they will cut corners. And it's devastating because when things go wrong in digital health, literally people die. If they're not harmed, they're dead, which is devastating. That's uh, like whatever you said is quite shocking because we already had one crisis, that Elizabeth home crisis. We had already gone through that. Millions of money has already been burnt into that. And still we are not learning from that crisis is pathetic <laughs> yeah that is the you hit the nail on the head the fact that we've seen this go horribly wrong and we're not fully learning from it you know i remember being at a um an event with investors and entrepreneurs in digital health earlier on in my career and i deliberately asked a question about the importance of ux like do investors in digital health care about having good UX work being done? And the investor shockingly said that, well, doctors and nurses and other clinicians, they're used to having products that are not very good. So don't worry about the UX, just make the product and they will buy it. And thankfully, there was an entrepreneur from a company called Zesty that was actually trading and doing quite well. And they stepped in just to highlight that um, the main thing with the investors is just make sure that they can get a return on their investment if you do good UX work. Because of course, like just because doctors will use a tool, especially if they're forced to, doesn't mean that we should make the tool rubbish. It doesn't mean that the UX should be bad. If anything, we should be ashamed of ourselves giving doctors and other healthcare professionals tools that are confusing, that are clunky, that cause stress, that can cause errors because their job is on the line. The patient's life could be on the line. The risk of failure and harm just shouldn't be there. So like I said, four or five years now, I keep hearing people thinking that UX isn't that important or isn't that hard and it will be okay. Or worse, now people are recognizing that UX is important but they're still not giving it the appropriate funding and resources that it needs to actually exist as a, as a distinct discipline in teams. That's a great point that you brought it up. Just because they're used to the pain, that doesn't mean we have to give them to that. And during COVID, that's the first lesson we learned that these are our frontline workers. They are the people who are going to take the society forward. Hearing something like that, that they're used to this is disheartening. And especially for you as a doctor, it must yeah. have been infuriating. It was, it was very, very infuriating because like, to me, it just emphasizes the exploitation that's happening in this field. As mentioned before, people are just seeing how they can make money out of this. Like mm -hmm. another aspect of this is where there's this rise in the creation of digital therapeutics. So a digital therapeutic is any digital product that prevents, manages, or treats disease. Mm. So a common one would be a tool where someone who's got um, type 2 diabetes, they can record their blood sugar readings 
maybe record their diet and nutrition and then get advice on how they can change their diet, how they can improve their glucose levels, but they don't have to see a doctor directly. How are you you're improving someone's health outcomes without them having to see a clinician? So you can reduce costs, you're improving um, personalized care, you're getting people to actually care about their own treatment, and there's loads of other benefits. But the crucial thing here is that because we know that this has the great potential to do great work, loads of people are like, oh, let's, let's give it a go, then let's have our own business in this field. And then they will focus on trying to provide a solution to people who can pay rather than provide a solution to people who have a problem because they're not necessarily the same thing. Mm. People who can pay are someone who's more likely middle class or more wealthy, but people who are really at risk of deteriorating health, generally speaking, are those who come from a lower socioeconomic status. They tend to be, if they're outside of Africa or Asia, they're going to be the non-white population. If it's anywhere in the world, it's going to be people who have the lower income in their home. The people who have less education, you know, they may never have learned to read or write. These are the people who are most worried about. So especially if you look at what governments are supposed to do to um, protect their citizens, there should be some sort of public health initiatives to keep everyone healthy. But the people who stand to gain the most are people who are normally non-white who are actually from a low income background who are impoverished or at least don't have good education as well we can keep them healthy through systems through technology through digital therapeutics we have mechanisms to keep everybody healthy but where does the money come from if someone doesn't have enough money to feed themselves and so that's why the entrepreneurs will be like, well, let's focus on people who are healthier because the healthier people tend to be the wealthier people. But then you're not really solving much of a problem, are you? So a common phenomenon in digital health is that the, air, the focus is on making money rather than solving problems. If you solve problems well, the money will come. You need to obviously have a bit of a plan, but generally speaking, solve a problem and the, the profit can come. If you just focus on trying to make the profit, it's very common that you will solve the wrong problem and actually have a failed business. Mm, that's a great point because this is a business problem in itself that a problem is so prevalent in this lower socioeconomic strata of our society. But because we are chasing the money, we don't realize how many opportunities we are missing. And this is a common practice that I've heard, that I've observed. Uh, so thank you for bringing that up because there is a solution that should come to it and maybe user research is the thing that finds a solution to it hopefully Definitely. Um, so this brings us to our next question which is that as you also pointed out that failure can mean death clinical ux demands utmost clarity and truth what is your methodology to ensure a research and the process of zero errors mm -hmm. and how can we apply that process if you have one to other domains in ux so that we can also implement a zero error journey there yeah so just scientifically speaking you know, trying to have zero risk of error is mm -hmm. virtually impossible mm -hmm. um, 
in reality, it's quite common that we then don't see any issues. But you know, when, when we're dealing with social technical systems, so this complex web of people and technology, mm. there is always a chance where when you make a change in one part of a system, somewhere else, there's going to be um, a problem because of that solution. And that's why trying to completely remove errors 100% of the time is, is it might as well be impossible. Now, there's two parts to this really on how you get there though in clinical UX. The first one is the ultimate process of doing UX work, which the process is standardized. How it's applied to projects isn't. So you're supposed to begin with research, followed by design, followed by you know, further research. So the exploratory research to understand the problem, explanatory research to explain what's going on, which then should then lead to a, an ability of you for a design, iterative design process to have clarity over the requirements and the constraints to then create the solution, whatever it is. And then evaluative research to make sure that the solution solves the problem that you've identified. So that process is standardized. What it looks like on a given project could be different. Like some projects that research phase, the exploratory research phase, just requires a five minute kickoff meeting. Other times it could be a couple of years of research. We don't know, it depends on the project. So that's where the process is standardized, but how it's applied isn't. But even that alone is enough when it comes to clinical UX because the variables at play, the unknown at knowns is just so vast that how would you know if you've done enough research? How would you know if you've done enough design work? You know, you could carry on forever. So there's five clinical UX design pillars that I teach my students and um, that I follow myself. So the first one, which I think is the greatest of the five, is the concept of humanitarian design. Like everyone deserves to have a good life, to be treated as a human being. So anything we design should honor and respect someone's humanity. So a great example, right? Across the Western world, so-called Western world, people are going to use a toilet that plums into a sewer system and the average citizen, like with me in the UK, we should never, ever have to touch raw sewage. Never. We never have to do it. And when we want to power our cars or power our homes, we're using gas, we're using electricity, we're using, um, you know, petroleum to put into, you know, the cars. But then... When we're talking about impoverished people or lower income communities across Africa, across Asia, we're telling people they should use their feces as fuel. I'm not saying it's wrong. I think it's actually a good thing. But why is it only okay for them, for those humans, but not for the humans in other parts of the world? And this is what I mean by humanitarian design. How comes, you know, they have enough dignity to put up with that but? You know, our dignity means that we shouldn't put up with that. And it's this issue of dignities is uh, a huge problem in, in healthcare. Mm. Otherwise, we wouldn't have all of this disparity in health outcomes, like your gender, your age, your race, your ethnicity, your religion, your sexuality can impact whether you actually improve with the same disease as someone else. It's only those differences like black women in the UK, they're up to four times more likely to die in childbirth than if 
a white woman was in childbirth. Simply the color of their skin. It's not, it's not genetics. There's been this perception that, oh, there's something about the way black women's bodies operate, they're more likely to know. It's actually how they are treated in the hospital. This is humanitarian design issue. So the next one is then people-centered design, which builds on the concept of user-centered design, but it's ultimately the fact that if I'm creating a product to be used by a doctor, I'm actually creating a product to be used by any clinician who needs to access that same health record about a patient. But also the patient might want to see their health record. The police or social services might need to see their health record. The information could be used by other clinicians in other parts of the world, in other hospitals, in other clinics, in other facilities. And so if I'm designing for one type of end user, I'm actually designing for loads of different ones. There's even the product team that have to manage that product once it's gone live. I have to design for them as well. So mm. it's the whole idea of thinking that actually it's not just one type of end user, there's other stakeholders that could be influenced. However, we design for them as well. Mm. In a cyclical design, the whole idea of, it's not just iterative design of the individual product and then we've gone live and then we're done. It's like, well, we've now given this product, how do we evolve this? The environment, the, the context has changed. So maybe our product now needs to change as a result. Yeah. And how can we improve upon that? So you go for a cycle of iterative design again. Yeah. And then there is evidence-based design, which is uh, a core concept in modern medicine. Mm -hmm. If you are going to give someone um, any treatment option, there should be evidence that backs it up. Unfortunately, I would say that maybe about half <laughs> of all the treatment options given to patients is really backed up by like a clinical trial or some true evidence. It's oftentimes that, well, I was trained that this works, so therefore I'm going to give this treatment. But there wasn't really clear evidence other than we see it works type thing. Like there's a lot of medication where we have no idea how it works. We just know it does something. So we'll give it to the patient. Um, but generally speaking, we should have a reason for giving treatment. The same principle of having evidence that backs up what you do should be central to what you do as a UX professional. If you are creating a customer journey map, if you are creating personas, if you are you know, creating a low fidelity wireframe, if you're creating a high fidelity interactive prototype, whatever the task is, there should be a reason why you're doing it. There should be evidence rather than just opinions that backs up why you're doing that work why it's going to be useful. Otherwise, don't do it. And then finally is ethical design. So everything that we do should be morally just. It shouldn't be illegal. We should go without saying, but you'd be surprised how many um, uh, compromises are made about ethics and law um, in healthcare. Like for example, as I mentioned before, there are digital health products that claim to heal you and there's no evidence to say that they will work. There might be um, some sort of academic paper that suggests that something like this technology could help, but there isn't evidence to say that when someone has used it, they've achieved you know, these specific health outcomes. And that's unethical. We shouldn't be forcing people to do stuff against their will, and we shouldn't be lying to them about what their likely success or outcome is going to be with using your product or service. So, Humanitarian, people-centered, cyclical, 
evidence-based and ethical design. If, if you at least have that in the back of your mind, those five principles, you're already gonna be reducing the chance of failure, the chance of doing something wrong because you're putting yourself in a position where you care and you're being systematic and you're always doing what you know is to be right and just for your end user. Mm -hmm. Okay, again, amazing points. And uh, I have a question there and that is specifically related to evidence-based proposition or there is some evidence of why is this thing working? Because mm -hmm. after we have created designs, we go on for user testing. And mm -hmm. that there again, the land gets murky. If you have mm -hmm. a homogeneous population, then doing it with few people can give you some idea of, okay, if this is working or not. Mm -hmm. uh, and that can be the case. That's why we make personas. But in your case, what kind of approach is it? to collect evidence, to even see if there is an evidence of what we have created is working or not? Or not. Is it, mm -hmm. how empirical is it? How qualitative is it? How quantitative is it? Like yeah. there are so many questions popping up right now. So you could shed some light on that. Yeah, this is a really good question. So of course it does depend on individual projects. Mm. But generally speaking, you should always, wherever possible, use secondary research findings to back up what you're doing. Mm -hmm. So the end goal here is to use triangulation. You want to have mm -hmm. two or more sources of truth come to the same conclusion. So mm -hmm. a great example, you could be working on a project that's supposed to change someone's health outcomes through a change in their behaviors. So you're trying to get someone to, for example, stop smoking. Now, we know from behavioral science that if um, someone believes that they've got the resources to stop smoking, so they've got like nicotine patches, we know that if their peers say that stop smoking can be a good thing, so they've got relatives or friends who have stopped smoking successfully, or there's people in positions of authority who also say smoking's bad or I could quit smoking, this is how I did it. Suddenly, the individual who needs to stop smoking feels more likely that that end goal can be achieved. Mm. So we've already got evidence to back this up, right? Mm. So I, if I'm thinking of working on such a project, I shouldn't be thinking, can we convince people to stop smoking? I already know the answer is yes. Because we've, we've seen people stop smoking and we know that behavioral science proves that people can change their behavior. What I don't know is what are the combination of literature or videos of experiences ultimately that someone needs to have to stop smoking. But surely there's been someone else in the world who's come up with an app or come up with a product, solution, service to help someone stop smoking. What can we learn from them? What can we copy? What can we adjust because it wasn't quite working as well? What do we not repeat because it was a bad decision? And then suddenly you start refining your solution. So it doesn't mean there isn't any primary research that you need to do. It's just that the primary research is now to validate whether a solution 
utilizing the features from competitors or comparative products or services out there, whether utilizing facts or statements that come from different uh, theories, whether this in combination leads to a great product. And now you start narrowing down your research plan to identify what are the primary research methods I need to use to validate that this solution can be useful or, or this concept or that this problem can be solved and what I can be leveraging. And then create a solution, you evaluate it. And especially in healthcare, when it ties in with behavior change, as much as you can do secondary research to back up why you believe this will be successful and to guide your decision-making process and the designing work that you're doing, you still need to test it out in a real-life situation. So you can do usability testing, which is a great way of identifying ways to improve because there's been you know, some area of confusion or lack of feedback or even the more mundane issues of there's a spelling mistake or you forgot to use the right color for this button or this, there's a bug here, you know, those sort of issues. But the real way of knowing, has someone actually cured their diabetes? You're not gonna find that out in a usability test. You're gonna find that if you give them the product to use over months, you know? So I think when it comes to user research in healthcare, there isn't enough access to secondary research findings. There's a lot of primary research being done, which is just repetition of work, which is not very useful. It's a lot of money that can be spent on primary research. So we need to be doing more secondary research and we need to remember that there's limitations to usability testing. At most, we can understand whether the experience in the here and now is good. We can't then say that, okay, because the users had a great experience, it made sense. They completed a task. We can't then say, therefore, they will achieve health outcomes. At best, we can say they are likely to achieve health outcomes because at least they're having a good experience. They're committed to completing the task with our product or service. You've got to do a trial. You've got, you've got to have an extended period of time to do that evaluative research with a real live product. Amazing points again. So what I... Could, how I could connect the dots is that are our evidences the same on all the levels? Like if I'm going qualitative, the scale is smaller, but if I'm going quantitative, my own primary empirical quantitative research is like, is it scaling, but is it the, still the same picture? And if I'm adding more data and supposed to secondary research, is the answer the same? Just the scale is differentiating here it's here at the smaller scale then a bigger than a bigger but everything should say the same story and yeah. the story is distinguishing then that's a signal for me that okay there is something that we have not given the correct amount of attention that's to. it hmm. that's it because you know it's extremely rare that you will work on a project that's a true invention hmm. right most of the time we work on innovations so an innovation is where we tweak something that already exists you know where we've used the ability to have um, video signals sent over the internet and audio files sent over the internet so you could have something like youtube to then have skype 
to then have telemedicine where you actually provide healthcare services over video and audio conference calls. These are innovations. We're building on technology that's existed beforehand because technically telemedicine was invented as soon as someone could send information at a distance. Smoke signals, you know, Morse code, you know, light signals, all of these flags, there's so many ways of communicating at a distance. That could have been the beginning of telemedicine, but no one thinks of it like that. It's so often associated with a mobile app where you can see the doctor. So inventions now is where you've literally created something and there's nothing like it. So creating a mobile phone, like creating a car, like a car is not comparable to a horse and carriage. There is no engine to a horse and carriage. There's a horse, it's an animal. Creating an engine that then allows people to travel, you know, creating a train, these are inventions. But it's an innovation when you go from, you know, um, more of a steam engine to one that's then using electricity, you know? There's still some inventions that might be at play in some of the technology, but when you look at a steam engine to a bullet train traveling in, in um, parts of East Asia, there's still innovation from previous types of trains. So if you're working on a project that's a true invention, there won't be much secondary research that you can leverage. But doing true inventions is rare. You're most likely doing an innovation. So there will be loads and loads of data out there if you look hard enough or have enough money to pay to get access at times to the resources to back up or at least inform you of what you need to know to make the best design decisions for your solution. Such a beautiful point. It's such a beautiful point because how you have defined innovation, it opens so many doors. I was reading something in this book called Anti-Fragile that the wheel was invented in the Babylonian era, but it took thousands of years to put that wheel under our luggages so that we can actually move the luggage effortlessly without much effort, without lifting them. And that innovation took thousands of years. Just such a simple thing. And similarly, we are not seeing that kind of innovations. As you said, as soon as we had phones, there was the chance for telemedicine. But we are not seeing that. So this paradigm or this kind of knowledge thinking can actually push us into that direction that mm -hmm. okay, there is some things we are not able to connect the dots or there are some things that we are missing that is hindering our innovation. So thank you so much for bringing that up. Okay. So another question I had on primary and quantitative and secondary research is that it's in something like medicine and clinical UX. It becomes very important to even how to even trust the kind of secondary research we are looking at. So are there any like things you avoid or things you look for in the research that you uh, get to back your or build your foundation? Like how do you trust how do you build that trust in the secondary research that you pick up? Yeah, so um, it's not that dissimilar to what you would do if you were in a more academic position rather than in the workplace. Make sure that the source of your data is one that you can trust. So where is it coming from? Like, 
generally speaking, you shouldn't be trusting Wikipedia. Um, it does have references, so you can click on those to find the source of what's been said, but by default, anybody can change a Wikipedia page. So um, well-respected newspapers, because newspapers, generally speaking, shouldn't lie. As much as there's newspapers that manipulate the truth, they generally don't lie. So if they've said something, they need to have a source of truth for it because when they make a mistake, people can get fired. <laughs> so they try to tell the truth. It's not always the case. We know that there's newspapers, there's media outlets that do a lot of propaganda, but there are times when actually they have to just tell the truth. But still, there's a lot of academic research that gets done that never goes out into the workplace, never goes out into industry. And this is something that, especially for professionals that have not got more advanced degrees, mm -hmm. they wouldn't realize how much academic research is being done on the same work they're doing that they're getting paid for. So if you can find publications, journals, speak to professors, speak to PhD students, there will be information that they have that can help you. But even just a Google Scholar search, there will be publication that you can have access to um, that, that can help. So I think that's, that's something that's often missing is that we find some information, but it could be an opinion. Mm. We don't need editorials. We don't need opinion pieces. We need facts. This is a common problem in digital health is that the whole project has relied on some middle-aged person who's far removed from the problem for, oh, this will be a good idea. Let's do it. And I'm like, well, it's not a good idea for these bits of evidence. But they weren't using evidence to base their decision. They were using opinions. They were using emotions. Mm. Emotions and opinions are important. But when we're talking about decisions of spending millions of US dollars on projects that can harm someone, if you're making a mistake, you can't rely on opinions and, and you know, just gut instinct and emotions. We need to rely on science. We need to rely on facts. Mm -hmm. I guess that would require some kind of training or it will come with time because that is something I struggle with now that mm -hmm. I'm a user researcher just trusting instinctively has become a little difficult yeah um, and that's normal that's normal because we live in a world where there is a lot of untrustworthy people. There's a lot of untrustworthy processes mm. going on, which makes people skeptical. Mm. This is why we have a lot of people that didn't want to take the COVID vaccination is because they personally had bad experiences with healthcare or they know someone who's had bad experiences with healthcare. Especially in America, there's a lot of black people that were tested on Tuskegee experiments where black soldiers were experimented on you know, there's so many atrocities that was done by um, the Nazi regime in the um, whole pursuit of science. So there's people, there's reasons why people don't trust medicine and why people may not trust even um, data that comes from certain sources. But this is where critical thinking comes into play. Like, have you actually just stopped and thought, well, could this be true? Does this make sense? Why has someone said this? How did they come to the conclusion? You know, just really trying to be clear on 
does this make sense? Could this be true? Hmm. If you're suddenly like, when I really just start picking this apart, I'm like, I'm concerned that this is a lie. No one else is saying the same thing. Then maybe through critical thinking, you can already identify, I shouldn't be trusting the source of truth. Like there's loads of people that keep talking about, for example, QAnon. There is no evidence to back up that there is some massive pedophile ring that's running the US government. There's no evidence for this. So with critical thinking, if you see an article about it, you're like, well, this is a lie. And there's other stuff for, oh, um, a high temperature can kill COVID. I'm like, but people have been dying of COVID in hot countries. Of course, it can't just be heat alone that kills COVID. This must be a lie. If it really was as simple as giving people lemon juice to kill COVID, I'm sure we wouldn't have the issues of COVID right now. You know, critical thinking. Just think, does this make sense? Could this really be true? Is anybody else agreeing with this? Where did they get their information from? And why are they saying this? Do they get a profit from it? Or are they just trying to do something to help other people? Uh, when you apply that critical thinking, it makes all the difference when you're facing data that you might not necessarily trust straight away because you didn't create the, the, that data. Mm -hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. Uh, you have brought some very important points in the sense there is always this debate that is UX a science or what is it exactly? Is it just simple logic? But uh, talking to you, I feel there are some scientific knowledge or scientific steps that we may be able to apply in the sense of our approach. I'm not asking people to go to a lab and do this, do that. Of it, course. Science is not always that. Science can also be how you approach things, how you mm -hmm. question things. Talking to you is helping me getting clarity on that paradigm and that kind of knowledge. Since you are in the business of utmost clarity, gaining utmost clarity. So we, we talked about your five pillars that are there for, you specifically mentioned for clinical research or clinical UX. Mm -hmm. But now let's talk from the point of elimination in the sense, what should we avoid as new user researchers or someone who's trying to understand their users? Mm. Uh, <clears throat> what should we avoid and why do you feel we should avoid that? So I think the first thing is avoid doing research just for the sake of it. Like I mentioned before, there should be a reason for why you're doing what you're doing. And so there's times very commonly in digital health, I've mentioned before, someone thought it was a good idea to create this solution, but they don't have all the facts about the problem. They haven't done the exploratory research, or if they have, it's very, very light exploratory research. I have literally been asked to work on projects, multi-million pound projects, mm. international teams, where the reason for working on the project was because a senior manager had a conversation with two clinicians and two patients, and that's it. And I'm like, this is not enough data to confirm that we should be spending millions of pounds. Yeah. You know, months and months of work from a dozen of people around the world. Like, there's not enough evidence to back this up. The brief that the purpose of the project is not good. 
because a lot of times researchers are asked to work on projects and there hasn't been that interrogation of the brief. It's just been accepted as the truth. Just, just do it because it's your job. But actually, if you already identify through critical thinking, through a systematic approach of exploring the brief that this isn't going to work, mm. you need to speak up and tell them, actually, we need to pivot. Because yeah. the thing is, if you don't know why there's a problem with the research or you don't already recognize that this is going to be a waste of time, fair enough. But if you've already seen that this doesn't make any sense, then no one would use this product. Why are you then continuing with the research? Mm. So, for example, there's this idea still now that, oh, let's give nurses mobile apps mm. to help them do their jobs better. Mm. The truth is, is that in the vast majority of the world, from my personal experience as a doctor, speaking to doctors around the world, but also speaking to nurses, nurses do not use mobile phones whilst they're on duty. If you're telling them to use a mobile app, you're going to change their workflow. Nurses don't tend to use mobile phones. They tend to use a computer. Sometimes they increasingly use a tablet device. Yeah. But they're not using a mobile phone because they're not supposed to. The nature of their job, they're wearing gloves all the time. There are times when um, the patient's dirty or they're doing something, some sort of cleaning activity or giving up medication. They can't always be using a mobile phone, especially not their own. Yeah. So when someone's like, oh, let's make an app that's going to help these nurses do a better job. I already told you, you're making a mistake. I don't need to do any research. But there's two things at play here. One is you need to already know this bit of information. What if you don't? You can't solve that problem. The second thing is you need to be able to communicate clearly to the person why they should stop doing the, the project or to change their plans and what that change should be. They can't just say, we've got a problem. You've got to also provide a next step. So we shouldn't be doing a nursing app. What should we do? Well, we can explore the problems that the nurses face, or at least understand their workflow, and then look for opportunities to optimize it. Let's do a task analysis, for example. And then from that, you can explore potential solutions, look at the commercial viability of that solution to see if it's not just that it's technically feasible and desirable to the end users but it's commercially viable if it's not commercially viable then again leave it alone and this is i think something else that researchers should um, keep an eye out for don't work on projects unless you know that this can lead to a commercially viable project it doesn't mean that the product has to be like some multi-million dollar product it's just that at least there's a mechanism for it to be self-sustaining when you provide this solution. Mm. If you're doing research that's supposed to lead to a product or service, you want to make sure that it is self-sustaining in the very least. Otherwise, you're not going to have a solution for your end users. So you've not actually done anything good. You've not done anything useful. A great point. Doing research just for the sake of research. And I can mm. see that kind of thing happening in a startup where yeah where one person is wearing different hats and they might do things just for the sake of it they do not have time or stuff like that so that's a very good point like do research because you are doing research and not for some sake or not so there's this lingo that goes around we have to validate this in research that's right 
actually don't have to validate anything you have to check its validity these are two completely different things and that is that can be well fit into what you just said that doing research just for the sake of research because then we are validating something and not checking the validity there things can get murky and eventually that will fall out not right now when you are doing your so called research but mm. the future it will so yes thank you so much for bringing that up because there are certain environments where this can happen and we might not might not even realize so just having the awareness of that is a great thing so thank you so much for that so another interesting thing that you are doing is you're leading the black ux society and the last time we talked you mentioned that not everyone can afford the carved out or the most the road most taken by mm-hmm. doing masters and then maybe interning for free it's just too mm. expensive and moreover putting money on ux education right now is riskier than a field like engineering yeah the courses or the structure or is not very clear even the professors don't know what they are actually dealing with because it's so dynamic and evolving mm-hmm. and we get a similar situation in india and maybe that's one of the reasons it's not as popular or not as sought after it is becoming like sought after and people are getting to know about user research and ux research but mm. it's something that can be sidelined or ignored yeah people aren't thinking about you know i'm 5 years old i want to grow up and be a ux designer <laughs> it's still it's still something that seems a little bit abstract but mm. i don't really know anybody who is at high school secondary school or even college who's mm. like i want to be a ux designer you think about that normally when you're in your 20s or older or mm. after starting a career and working in that profession for a while it's not so common that it's like i'm 18 years old i'm going to be a ux professional no one really says that yeah absolutely so what kind of paths should one carve out there are many indians that cannot afford this traditional path of putting their yeah. money in masters and turning for free what kind of path such people can carve out for themselves in the field of user research and ux mm-hmm. that you have seen or that can help people like that yeah so i think it is important that people recognize that there are multiple ways to get into ux design it's not like medicine where you have to get into medical school you have to graduate before you can then work as a doctor like this impossible otherwise or there has been a few people who have pretended to be doctors and have been able to get paid even But generally speaking you need a medical degree so you have to go to university and then you have to graduate and then you can apply to work as a doctor in UX there are so many paths there's people who have never done any formal training in UX who then do UX work the quality of the work can be very variable for such people sometimes they could be doing great work especially if they're more so focused on UI design but if they're to be doing UX research like being completely self taught i think you're asking too much because there's a lot that you need to learn to do good ux research so because there's so many paths 
what's actually common across the past for you to be successful in this profession. And it does really apply to any profession if you really want to get great at it. So not just good, but competent to be a leader in it for UX in general, and especially UX research. There's five things you need to keep in mind. The first one is some formal study is necessary. It could be free. It could be the Google UX course. It could be, you know, one of these uh, multi-step um, online courses. It could be that. But if it's only that, you're not focusing on the other four areas or ways of learning, you're going to limit your ability to learn. What's good about structured teaching is that it provides you knowledge and information on what you didn't know you didn't know. We mentioned before about unknown unknowns. If you've never worked as a UX professional, there's surely going to be aspects of that job, skills, knowledge that you don't know about. The way to be certain that you've not missed anything out is to have structured teaching, but it can't provide you with all of the unknown unknowns relating to the profession, but it does provide you with that foundation. Next area is then self-study. So now that you've got a basic understanding from some sort of structured teaching, you're then delving deeper and learning more about topics that you know you don't know about or what you know you want to know more about. Do you want to get better at it? You know there's a weakness, there's a gap in your knowledge, you go and deal with that, or you know you want to get better with a particular area, so you go ahead and do more study. That will make you better, but it will only be limited by what you teach yourself, because it's self-study. Mm. If there's any unknown unknowns on that path, you may discover some of them, but you may not, because you're not directing yourself towards something that's unknown. You don't know what's out there. Mm. So then the third area then is networking. It's always important to be part of a network. There are millions of people around the world who are either interested in UX or working in UX. And they're not all newbies. They're not only working in the same part of the world, same country, they're all over the world. You need to network. And when you network with people, you should be seeing what can they help you with, but also what can you help them with? What can you offer? And even as someone who's new to UX, there is still something that you could say that could be of use to someone, right? I'm not saying, oh, let's explain what a Norman door is again. Like everyone who is learning about UX, reads the design of everything they think, learns about Don Norman, Norman doors. Like that's fine. I'm meaning that you could be saying a, a unique perspective on a topic that you've just read, that you've just come across. You can share that with people because it's bound to be someone else that didn't know about it so feed a network like don't just take from it provide to it have mentors not just one mentor but multiple mentors there's no one person that can teach you everything you need to know about life that's why generally speaking people were supposed to have two parents but there's also this um old saying of you know it takes a village to raise a child because there's multiple people that can provide unique input in different ways than somebody else. Mm. So I have mentors that are healthcare professionals. I have mentors that are non-healthcare professionals. I have mentors that work in UX and mentors that don't work in UX because they've all got something unique that they can teach me and pass down to me. Mm. And then finally, you need to have work experience. Mm. You're going to learn all this theory, practice all these skills, 
The only real way to know that you know what you're doing is to put it to good use, work on real projects and get mentors, supervisors to oversee the work you've done, provide feedback. Even people in your network, peers can provide feedback, but peers can only provide feedback based on the limits of their structured teaching and their self-study if they haven't had any work experience. So that's why you need to have that wealth of input from different types of people. So structured teaching, self-study, good network that you feed, not just take from, have a variety of mentors, not just one mentor, and have work experience to put what you've learned into practice. Really great points. Um, thank you so much for that again. And you have also been mentoring many people. So that is coming from you. That means a lot because you have had experiences with people entering the field. You are familiar with that kind of personality and that kind of environment where people are confused. And mm. you, there is another layer of socioeconomic also added because you have seen that, you have experienced that, you have talked mm -hmm. to people like that. So you are bringing that kind of empathy and anecdotes. So thank you so much for bringing that up because usually that isn't discussed despite being such a impactful variable in someone's life, people tend to miss it. So, yeah. so much. And I'm glad that I'm comfortable talking about such things with you because that might not be the case always. Um, no, it's been a pleasure sharing my, my thoughts and my experiences with you, what I've learned in my, my journey so far. There's still plenty more for me to be learning and yeah. I, I enjoy the journey. And I'm, I'm glad that I'm part of the solution that you're creating here with your podcast to get other people to to learn about what does it mean to do great UX work, yeah. not just in healthcare, but in any industry. Yeah, absolutely. Great. Uh, it's kind of validating that you are recognizing the purpose. Thank you. And, uh, it means a lot to me and anyone who will be listening to this because, again, this is another gold mine of wisdom. And uh, with each episode, my knowledge is ex expanded and my mind is blown. So I'm really loving this. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you for, for welcoming me on your podcast. It's been a real pleasure. And um, for any listeners, you know, feel free to reach out to me if you ever want to know more about Clinical UX. Just, you can find me on LinkedIn. So Dr. Giles Morrison, G-Y-L-E-S Morrison. You can find me on my website, drgilesmorrison.com. And also find out more about Clinical UX at clinicalux.org.